This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship, and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. It just occurred to me uh, while we were singing that song, and I thought, oh, I wish I'd bought that photograph. Mary and I were in Europe two years ago, and uh, we did a trip down the Rhine River, and we stopped in lots of old medieval villages. And in just about, and, and these were villages that had a, like a castle wall around them so that the people that lived in the village would be safe at night and all that kind of thing. And, of course, there'd be a big gate where you came and went during the day, and then just on dusk they'd shut the door. And So you come to this gate, and we saw this many times, and one of the first things you noticed was... Um, set in the wall right next to the gate were these metal, uh, lengths of metal that were kind of different lengths, three or four different lengths. And, and as I say, we saw it probably six or seven times in different villages. Now, what do you think those lengths of metal were for? Any ideas? Let's say I'm coming to your village from somewhere else to sell cloth. And, and people in the village want to buy the cloth and I'm coming along and I'm going to be selling you the cloth in the marketplace and I'm going to sell it to you according to whatever length. You know, I'll sell you six arms lengths worth of cloth for such and such. Can you imagine how much trouble there might be if you and I had different lengths arms? So whose measure am I using to measure the cloth, do you think? So there could be arguments about what's the standard. When I say I'm selling you six arm's lengths of cloth, what standard am I using? And these pieces of metal next to the gate to the town was basically saying this is the standard that we use in this town when we're buying and selling goods. And and I mention that because it, it somehow or other that memory came back to me when we were singing. And I'm going to talk about a standard in the talk. So just keep that, that um, picture in your mind. So welcome everyone. It's great to see you all here today. And if you haven't been here recently, you may not be aware that we're looking at a series over several weeks titled Longing for Love. And it's looking at love and at gender and at sexuality uh, and at marriage and, and at some of the, these issues that relate to those things that are very topical in the world today. And there are different standards being proposed in each of those areas about what's okay and what's not okay. And we just want to open up that whole area and talk about those things and look at the standards that are being offered and the standard that we might adopt. So that's, that's the underlying approach that we're taking in this series. And I can't see the screen at the back, so I just need to every now and then check that I'm up to the same place in my notes. So we've actually gone through, we've been stepping through a number of questions in this area. Um, and you can see them as the steps in that picture on the screen. And so far we've looked at love, and we've looked at freedom and we've looked at sex 
And we've been pretty open about these subjects. We haven't been sort of trying to hide it and keep it all in, you know, kid-friendly language or whatever it might be because we've had a pretty adult audience and a teenage audience, a near-adult audience, and we want everyone to be able to talk about these things um, and, and, and not sort of have to work these things out for ourselves in secret but to actually have conversations about it here and at home so that um, our young people, as they're starting to grapple with these questions and face these questions, know that they can talk about them and, and learn from our experience and from the experience of others that we know and trust about how to approach these questions. And, and what we're trying to do, unashamedly, is to present what we might call an orthodox Christian understanding of what these things mean. And when I use the word orthodox and Christian in, together, I often think of those very ornate churches in Greece and Russia and other places and, and bishops with really fancy gear. and you know all that. That's not what we mean by orthodox when we're using it here. We're talking more about the kind of the traditional Christian view of these things, the original unpolluted, normal, vanilla Christian view of the different topics that we'll be discussing. And that's the approach that we want to take. And this week, I want to look at what is marriage. And before I go too far into that, I want to talk a little bit about singleness. Because I know often, in, uh, especially in... Christian circles, when people meet together in church, uh, when people who follow Christ meet together and talk, and, and it's all about marriage. And people who aren't married and people who are single can feel left out or, or somehow um, a lesser citizen. And that's absolutely not what God says, as we'll see in a minute. And it's not what I want you to hear me saying, because I'm not saying that at all. So I just want to look at this very quickly. If, if we think of this singleness as a circle, a circle kind of represents a single entity, a single thing, one thing, represent that as a circle. It's very common to represent marriage like this, isn't it? Two interlocking circles, where kind of two individuals, but, but there's an overlap between them. And that often you'll see bumper stickers with that symbol on them, won't you? Representing something about marriage. It's a very common way of representing marriage. And I just want to say, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, way, way, way back, at the beginning of the Bible, we get this passage um, where it says, it's talking about Adam and Eve, and we'll come back to this passage later, but it says, in this way, two people become one. And it's not about two circles that overlap a little bit in the middle. It's about two becoming one. So I like to represent marriage as a single circle. It's a oneness. A married couple is one. And, and if you look at those two symbols, what do you notice? <laughs> they look the same as each other. And I firmly believe that in God's eyes the state of singleness and the state of marriage, two people having become one, in God's eyes it's the same. God is looking at a single person who's a unit 
and he's looking at a married couple who are a unit. And when he calls us to be one with him, he's talking to these two units, either a single person or... So there's no sense in which somehow or other the individuals in a marriage have got some higher status in God's eyes than the person who is single for whatever reason. So I don't, when I talk about marriage today, I don't want you to think that I'm somehow demoting or devaluing or that I think less of singleness at all. I do not, and nor do I think God does. And I hope that's very clear, and um, I'll, I'll come back to you to that and remind you about it towards the end of the talk. So I like to represent marriage as a single circle. And this circle also represents a gold standard in a different way. I'm using the same image, but now I'm using it to mean something different. A bit like the measures of iron by the gatepost in the village, the circle represents a gold standard. When you come into this place, this is the standard that you are to adopt. That's the way I'm using this circle now. And the world would have us believe that there's a different standard to the gold standard that we might learn about from an orthodox Christian perspective. Think of the issues that we've talked about over the last few fortnights with love and freedom and sex. Over and over and over again, we've said, well, here is a standard as we understand it from God's word as it's recorded in the Bible. And here is all these other here are all these other things that the world is telling us love doesn't only mean this, it can mean this and this and this, and these things are all so much better. And the world is trying to present to us a standard that the world would tell us is much, much better and more interesting and more exciting and more fun and more satisfying and more fulfilling than the traditional Christian gold standard. That's a very common way of looking at what's going on in the world in these areas. And there is pressure (laughs) to move beyond the gold standard into this other world that's being painted for us and, and that's being presented to us as, as an ideal that we should um, throw off the shackles of old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy thinking about love and about freedom and about sex and about marriage and move into this new space that man has defined and created for all sorts of reasons. This is a theme that we've been looking at over the last um, few fortnights. And we've looked at it with respect to those three things in particular so far. And when we do, when, as we've looked at these things, we've seen that actually the, the pressure to step outside this gold standard and, and start to pursue and believe in and desire something else, um, it's not honest, it's not it's a flawed pressure. So I've, the, the arrows are the pressure and I've just drawn them here as dotted lines because they're not actually as strong as the world might have us believe and they're not as real as the world might have us believe and they're not as truthful 
as the world might have us believe. And we've looked at that in several different areas. And in fact, this thing that's being offered to us in love, a new definition of love or a new definition of freedom or a new definition of of sex and how we use sex in our lives, it's not necessarily what it's cracked up to be. And, And Daniel talked about this a fair bit a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about sexuality and sex and the expression of sex and 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 how if you take that beyond the gold standard um and have a kind of a liberal approach to sex and sexuality and with whom you have sex you leave a little bit of yourself behind every time remember daniel talking about that so you become diminished because you know there's a little bit of you left here and a little bit of you left over there and a little bit of of your soul left over here in each of these fleeting relationships that you have um and so it's not what it's cracked up to be at all and so that's the that's the representation of the broken red circle um which leaves us with the gold standard a a full complete satisfying fulfilling understanding of these things which become things we think about a lot as we approach adulthood and as adults we think about these things a lot and the gold standard the orthodox christian view is complete it's true it's fulfilling it's satisfying and i would argue it's all that we require it's all that we require and we've we've looked at that um, with love with freedom and with sex and today we're going to look at it in the context of marriage but before we do i'm just going to invite you to reflect for a while on the basic concept and if you've been here for the other talks just reflect back on on some of the things that we've looked at and discussed and had presented to us and just reflect on this symbol this model this picture of what we've been talking about um whoops in respect of the things that we've already talked about is there anything that that you sort of going back two three four five six weeks i just just have a minute to just reflect on what we've been talking about and um, thinking about over the last few weeks So now let's have a look at marriage. And first, I want to look at the law of the land. I want to look at the law that governs what marriage is in our country. And this is a definition of marriage from the Marriage Act, which was first brought into law in Australia in 1961. Now, Australia became a country in 1901, 
And before 1901, the law in Australia was the law of England. So, so whatever the law was in England about marriage, that was the law that we followed, for example. And from 1901 through to 1961, each of the states had its own law to do with marriage. And in 1961, for the first time, there was one law about marriage for the whole country. So there were little differences from state to state up until then. That's not important. What is important is that in 1961, this is how the Marriage Act defined marriage. Now, teenagers, what do you notice in this definition? What are the key things in this definition that you can see there? What's marriage... who is marriage between? What's it out loud? I know this is a man and a woman. Okay, so marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage Act, nineteen sixty-one. What else do you notice? A man and woman to the exclusion of all others. That's very clear. What else? Entered into for life. One other thing, it's voluntary. You can't be forced. If someone's forced into a marriage, well, that's not actually a marriage in accordance with the Marriage Act. So this is 1961. Now, how does this measure up with your understanding of what it might say in the Bible? How close does it come to what it says in the Bible? Sarah, what do you think? Pretty close. It's pretty much spot on, isn't it? You could say that in 1961, and for many years thereafter, the law in Australia defined marriage in accordance with the gold standard that we would learn if we tried to find out what marriage means in the Bible. It's, it's a 100% match. So the gold standard held true for the law of the land. Look at what happened in 1975. Here's the gold standard. 1975. This is um, under the Family Law Act, which was brought out in 1975. What's different? There's a new kind of relationship between two people that are living together and sharing their life. What's it called? De facto? It's not a marriage, but when you look at other parts of the Family Law Act, it's, it's like a marriage. You, people in a de facto relationship have the same rights and responsibilities as people in a marriage. So there's a new way of being not quite married called de facto relationship. What else in this act is different to the gold standard? Same sex. It doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. It could be between a man and a man or it could be between a woman and a woman. And uh, what's the other point up there about the gold standard being that this is a commitment for life? What else is up there? You can be divorced for irreconcilable differences. Now, what on earth does that mean? That means... Yeah, somehow or other, Mary and I have decided this is all getting too hard and, you know, we don't really love each other as much as we used to. And actually, I think I love my secretary more than I love my wife, so let's, let's agree to call it quits. And that's okay. Under this, 
law, the Family Law, which was Family Law Act, which was introduced in 1975 in Australia, that would be okay. It's called no-fault divorce. You can get divorced without anyone really being at fault, as in having committed adultery or you know something that's a major fault. That used to be grounds where a marriage could be broken up, annulled. You could be divorced. Now you can just be divorced because it's not working out so well anymore. Um, so what's happened to the gold standard? It's been pushed aside, you know. There's, there's a new way of talking about what a relationship between a man and a woman might be in the law. And it doesn't even have to be between a man and a woman. It can be between two men or, or two women and so on. So in 1975, the gold standard got... The, 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 the law of the land moved beyond or past the gold standard. What happened... Four years ago, there was a, um, what was called a plebiscite, a postal vote, and all the people over 18 years of age in Australia were asked to, to um, express their opinion on whether or not a marriage needed to be between a man and a woman. And, and democratically, the people in Australia decided that actually we don't need marriage to be defined as being between a man and a woman anymore. It can be between any two people, and that's the change that was made. And you can see um, up there that that's it, it. Now says instead of saying the union of a man and a woman, it says the union of two people, um, and the other words remain the same. So between that change to the Marriage Act, which was in 2017, uh, and the introduction of the Family Law Act that sits alongside the Marriage Act. The gold standard has been pushed aside and this new standard has been defined by the world. Um, and there's been a lot of pressure on Christians to acknowledge that and, and not to be um, judgmental or discriminate against or be critical of anyone who, who chooses to live out in the space defined by the, the red circle, the space that the world has defined for what marriage can now mean. So you can clearly see what I was talking about before, where the gold standard was once considered to be good enough. The world has defined some new standard, which in the world's eyes is bigger and better, somehow more satisfying or fulfilling or respectful or whatever it might be. And there's pressure to move beyond the gold standard into this new territory. That's the law of the land. Let's have a look at what the scriptures say. And um, I want to look in the New Testament. I want to look in the Old Testament. And I want to look at our Testament. Three different aspects. So, firstly, in the New Testament. And this is in Matthew's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. It's chapter 19 and verses 3 to 12. And in this passage, which I won't read the whole thing out, but I'll just pick a few pieces out of it. But basically, if you want to know what did Jesus say about marriage, this is the passage to go to. Chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. And um, some Pharisees who were leaders of the traditional Jewish law, 
They were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to somehow get him to say something that they could use to condemn him. So they're asking tricky questions. And they asked him, uh, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason he chooses? Is that okay? <laughs> Think back to what happened in the Family Law Act. I mean, our government made that, made that decision. It is okay, according to them. But that's the question Jesus was asked. And as is often the case when people are trying to trick Jesus, he used the opportunity to tell them what he wanted to tell them, whether or not he directly answered their question. He, it gave him the opportunity. That question gives me the opportunity to say what I want to say about marriage. And this is what he said. Surely you know. Surely you have read this in the scriptures. So these are the Pharisees who studied the law and Jesus was acknowledging that they would have studied Genesis in their Pharisee school. They would have known very well what it says in Genesis. And, and Jesus says, the quote, from the, one that, the, the quote from Genesis we looked at before, when God made the world, he made people male and female. And God said, that is why a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two people will become one. So they are no longer two but one. God has joined them together so no one should separate them. Those you could take those words and just with a little bit of changing the order in the sentence or whatever, those words basically match what was in the Marriage Act back in 1961, as was pointed out before. And then the Pharisees ask a question about divorce. And Jesus says, well, Moses let you divorce your wives because you didn't accept what God was trying to teach you. And eventually he said, oh, if you, if, you, if you don't get this, all right, you can divorce your wives under certain circumstances. But Jesus went way beyond that, way beyond it. He said, I tell you that whoever divorces his wife except for the problem of sexual sin and marries another woman is guilty of adultery. So if a man's wife went and had sex with someone else, it was okay for the guy to divorce his wife in those circumstances and he could remarry. But if he divorced her just because she wasn't very interesting anymore or they had some difference they couldn't sort out, or if it was just, you know, I found something better, that wasn't a good enough reason. And if he then married someone else, that was committing adultery. That's what Jesus said. And Adultery, in that day and age, was a sin punishable by stoning. As in stoning until you're dead, not just stoning till it hurts a bit. So Jesus made that pretty clear. But I don't, I don't necessarily think there's any argument about that here. I think it's the next words that Jesus said that carry the most weight for us today. Because after this conversation, Jesus' own followers asked him, if that's the only reason a man can divorce his wife, then it's better not to marry in the first place, surely. This is Jesus' own followers. So they just heard Jesus say, well, really, 
the only time a man could divorce his wife, and I should say vice versa, although that's not the context in which Jesus was presenting it, but if one party to a marriage commits adultery, then that's sufficient reason to um, divorce, but there's no other adequate reason. That's really what it's saying. And the disciples are saying, well, what, what, what about when we get to the point where, you know, we're just not really enjoying our love for each other anymore and it's gone a bit stale, you know? And we, you mean we've got to stay in that marriage? Uh, I'd rather not get married at all. Thank you very much. That's pretty much what Jesus' followers were saying. And Jesus said, it may be true for some that it's better not to get married. That may actually be true for some, but only for those who've been given this gift. What's the gift? The gift of singleness. Wow, what a concept. That there is a state of being that Jesus recognises and describes as a gift, which is singleness. And that's, that's the basis for me saying that Jesus sees singleness as something pretty special, just as he sees marriage as something pretty special. It's not that one is better than the other. They are each special in his eyes and in God's eyes. And he talks about why someone might remain single, why they might have received this gift of singleness. There are different reasons why some men remain single. Some were born without the ability to produce children. Others were made that way later in life. So he's actually talking about people who've been injured in war or or brutalized in some way and had their testicles crushed or removed or you know through some trauma they they cannot have children and others have given up marriage because of God's kingdom wow so people voluntarily choose not to become married in order to serve God's kingdom in a special way that married people may not be able to do. I think that's an extraordinary elevation of the status of singleness compared to um, how it's often presented in churches where singleness is a state of waiting until you can get married. <laughs> you know, And until you've become married, you're somehow incomplete. And although it's probably never spoken from the pulpit, just in the emphasis that's given to marriage and parenting and families and so on somehow or other it sounds like that's what we're saying and um and and we shouldn't be and i'm not and so jesus says basically that singleness is for anyone who is able to accept it and and i think that's a very powerful message for us but the key thing about this passage as it relates to marriage is that Jesus refers back to that passage in Genesis chapter 2, way, 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 way back. One of the earliest concepts that's introduced into the scriptures is about man and woman made one together for life based on uh, the story of Adam and Eve. And so that's the story in the Old Testament. And I've looked at it twice already. Uh, in this short talk. So I don't think I need to go into too much extra detail about it. 
But it's amazing when you read these words and, and Adam is celebrating the fact that instead of sharing the Garden of Eden and Paradise with all these animals, nice as they were, he now has flesh of his own flesh, um, bones from my own bones, someone with whom he can identify intimately in a special way that he wasn't able to share with all the animals that God had introduced him to. And it, it says, she was taken out of a man, so I will call her woman. And here's that line. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. In this way, two people become one. So basically, Adam, in the way it's described in this passage in Genesis, Eve was made from Adam, so the two came from one. And there's this overwhelming desire for the two to come back and become one again. And that's what Adam's talking about. The physical, um, emotional, spiritual union with someone who is so like him compared to any of the animals that there's this desire to be one, uh, one with Eve. And it says, the man and his wife were naked, but they were not ashamed. There's no concept of, of, of sin in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, which is another story for another time. Here we have a very clear, strong picture of the gold standard of marriage, of, of a man and woman becoming one. Now, I want to talk about our testament. And the reason I think this is important, and, and I actually have come to think that the two main reasons that we should adopt a traditional Orthodox Christian view of marriage in our lives is firstly, it is the model, it's the gold standard that's set before us in the scriptures. That's the first reason. The second reason is that Jesus uses marriage as a way of describing to people, the world, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Marriage is a picture of what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. Um, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 22 and again in 25, are two different stories told by Jesus... And in each case, he starts off with the words, God's kingdom is like dot, dot, dot. And the dot, dot, dot is a description of a wedding feast. It's a description of a bridegroom and a bride and the celebration about the two of those becoming one or, or soon to become one. Um, the first one is the, is the father and the wedding feast for his son who's about to be married. So the kingdom of heaven is like a father who puts on a feast for his son, the bridegroom, who is about to marry his bride. Uh, and then the second story in chapter 25 is about the, the young women waiting with their lanterns to welcome the bridegroom as he comes to the wedding feast and to escort him in, into the town with these lights so that he would have safe passage to the, to the wedding feast. And um, again, another story, but five of them 
uh, went to sleep, forgot what they were doing, ran out of oil, and they could no longer be a part of that procession because they hadn't been eagerly waiting for the bridegroom. They'd given up on their job. The other five had, had diligently trimmed their lamps and kept everything ready, waiting for the bridegroom. So that's what that story is about. But they're both about wedding feasts. They're both about a marriage. And in Revelation, in chapter 21, there's a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And part of that picture is the bridegroom returning to be married to the bride. And the bridegroom is Jesus, and the bride is the church. It's us. So part of the fulfillment of the Scriptures, part of what's going to happen in the last days is that Jesus is going to return to earth, and it's all in the context of the, um, the marriage of Jesus the bridegroom to the church, the bride. So marriage is a really important, fundamental picture that Jesus paints about what it's like to be one of his followers. You know, in, in ancient uh, Jewish times, the process by which one got married was a young man would come to the family of a young woman who he thought would make a, a, good, bri- a good wife and negotiates some sort of deal about the terms on which the father of that woman would allow him to become his son-in-law. And so a, a contract was signed. We would think of it as engagement, but it's the equivalent of engagement. The son then went away and prepared a home. And when he'd finished preparing the home, he came back and then was the wedding celebration. And then he would take his bride with him to the home that he'd prepared. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus came to earth and effectively negotiated a deal, if you like, which involved him dying on the cross, which we'll reflect on in a moment with communion. And and for those that believe why he died on the cross and choose to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, he's, he's going to come back to claim his bride. But he's gone away and it says, what did Jesus say? He told his followers, I'm going to go away for a time. Why? What's he doing while he's away? He's preparing a room. <laughs> For each one of us. He's doing exactly what happened in the Old Testament kind of approach to to marriage. He's preparing a home for us in heaven. And he's going to come back. He's going to come back to claim his bride, which is us, the church. And there's this marriage feast. And we'll return with him to the home that he's prepared for us in heaven. So marriage is a really, really strong picture in the scriptures of what our eternity with God is going to be like. It starts with a marriage feast, an amazing celebration of the return of the bridegroom, the union with the bride, and so on. Now, if I was to stand up 
in the public square, Elizabeth Street Mall, and talk about the kingdom of God is like a marriage, what will most of the people who hear those words be thinking of when I say marriage? What's the picture that they have of marriage, do you think? Anybody? What does marriage mean in our, in our society today? It could be anything you wanted it to be, really, couldn't it? For as long or as short a period as you feel like, you know, until the gas has gone out of this, nah, had enough, someone else looks better, I'll finish this. If that's, if that's how the world sees marriage, and they do, that, that's become a typical picture of marriage in our society and I'm trying to tell them that Jesus is the bridegroom and he's going to come back um, and the church is the bride and there's going to be this marriage feast can you imagine people thinking oh yeah that might last a few years you know someone will get sick of it and want out and yeah you know it's probably okay if one or other of them's got someone else on the side you know whatever I mean that's the way marriage is in our society these days that's not the gold standard, that's, but, but that's the way marriage is. So coming back to my point, I think the second reason why it's really important for us as followers of Jesus to observe the gold standard of marriage is that we are showing the world what marriage is. So that when we talk about the marriage of Jesus as the bridegroom returning to marry the church and that they would be one, if, if people's understanding of marriage is based on what they see in the lives of people who follow Jesus and stick to the gold standard, that's a pretty attractive thing. <laughs> it makes sense and it's true and it's real and it's satisfying and it's fulfilling. But if we don't, show the world that gold standard and they're just seeing whatever they see out there called marriage, then the description that is used by Jesus himself to talk about what, what eternity is like doesn't hold water. It, it, there's nothing that people can attach to and think, oh yeah, I know what that is. That sounds pretty good. I mean, when Jesus comes back, it's forever because marriage is forever. You know, when Jesus comes back, it's exclusively between him and his bride, the church, because that's what marriage is. It's voluntary, because that's what, you know, all these things that are part of the gold standard, we have a responsibility, I think, to show the world what that gold standard is through our own marriages. And that means, for those of us who aren't yet married, but expect that maybe one day we will be married, that's what we should be aspiring to. That's when we think about the marriage that we might one day enjoy, it's a marriage that should look like that. And for those of us who are already married and we're getting to those times inevitably in a marriage where things are not easy and we have a choice to work a little bit harder together and make it work and make, it, make the two truly one or oh, do what the rest of the world does, now this has suddenly become too hard I've tried, I've had enough, 
I just need to leave this and start all over again. We have an obligation as followers of Jesus to make our marriages reflect the gold standard that we find in the scriptures so that the world will know what Jesus is talking about when he talks about marriage and eternity in heaven. And you think about any number of other words that have huge import in God's word, like father, like man and woman. Those words, the meaning of those words is being eroded in the world. Church, you know? Those words now have negative connotations in the world for all sorts of different reasons or confusing connotations. It's not clear what they mean anymore because the gold standard is being eroded here and here and here and here and here so that the world cannot clearly see what we're talking about. When we talk about our Father in heaven, when we talk about marriage, when we talk about a man and a woman, all these words, when we talk about the church, so many unclear or negative connotations out there and and we have a responsibility to shine the light on the truth the true meaning of these words that the true what they truly mean when they're lived out and practiced and i want to really encourage people in that space can i finish by looking at a passage of scripture from john's eyewitness account of the life of jesus partly as an introduction to communion. This was the last meal that Jesus shared with his followers before he, went, before he was arrested and tried and found guilty and, and crucified. And he, he spent this time with them um, around a table. They ate together and, and Jesus talked to them about various things. And I just love, there's several chapters in John's Gospel that are really just Jesus talking to his followers as the last things that he said to them. And this is from chapter 17. And it's directly relevant to what we've just been talking about. And it's Jesus, he's not so much talking to them in chapter 17, he's praying for them. He's praying to his Father. I pray not only for these followers, the ones at the table with him, but also for those who will believe in me because of their teaching. That's us. We, we believe in Jesus because of the teaching of his followers and because that's been passed down through the generations. So Jesus is praying for us. Father, I pray that all who believe in me can be one you are in me father and i am in you i pray that they can also be one in us this is what jesus wants for us that we can be one with him one with his father then the world will believe that you sent me so one of the reasons for us to be one with jesus and one with his father And to enjoy that connection is so that the world can see that in us and desire it for themselves so that they will believe that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. I have given them the glory that you gave me. 
I gave them this glory so that they can be one. It keeps coming back to the importance of being one, being one with each other as a married couple, being one with each other as brothers and sisters following Jesus together, being one with Jesus himself through his spirit. I will be in them and you will be in me. So they will be completely one. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you loved them just as you loved me. So this whole idea of being one with God is incredibly important. And, and God desires to be one with us as singles and he desires to be one with us as married couples.